I would have to say Gary Scott, number one. Yeah, Gary Scott. And he was an easy guy not to like, but uh, a heck of a racer, you know. Episode 55, short week. We got another good show for you guys this week. Two-time champion in the early 80s, Randy Goss is coming on the show. My co-host is on the other line, Robbie Bobby McClendon, back, back in the saddle. What's going on, man? Man, I'm here. I'm ready to talk, and I'm ready to learn something. I'm, I'm kind of nervous because anytime we have a Grand National champion, you never really know how they are. Um, I mean, obviously, they're always cool, but everybody has a different personality. So I really cannot wait to dig in and see what this guy's got to say. Yeah, I mean, I obviously know. I mean, grow up in, growing up in the sport, I, I know the name Randy Goss, but I've actually never, that I can remember, I've never actually met Randy. So I'm, I'm pretty nervous a little. Like, I'm excited, but nervous as well to, to get on this uh, great, great rider. A big thanks to Wally Brown for for helping helping make this happen i uh, really appreciate wally for uh for dialing in randy for the show our audio might be a little spotty rob's actually traveling to a race in virginia this weekend the rva flat track promoted by mike hacker and john nickens i'm headed that way as well but we got a couple of things to talk about before we roll we call randy rob want to make sure we shout out our sponsors and make this show happen week in and week out without their support. This wouldn't be possible. Bell Power Sports. Check out bellhelmets.com. The Race Star Flex DLX. Best helmet in the game. A lot of top guys in many different series use it, including myself. So make sure you check them out. If you start tank slapping, you want to be protected by Bell. The Moto America Series. Road Atlanta, April 30th to May 2nd. STG Junior Cup. King of Baggers. Hona Superbike. Supersport. Stock 1000 and Twins Cup. They are partnering with the AFT series off in the American Super Ticket. You can get the Super Ticket and then uh, go watch both events over the course of a weekend for $99. Go check me out at the uh, TT. Check Rob's guys out, Dalton's racing. And then Frankie Garcia, our boy, is racing the Bagger Cup in Moto America. If you can't check out, check out the action live, subscribe to the Moto America Live Plus package. DID chain at DID chain on social media, Instagram, all the major teams across the industry use the DID chain. We use the 520 MX chain uh, for the GNG racing team, top chain, many, many championships. The, the brand speaks for itself, hit them up on social media and ask them questions, ask them what chain they best recommend for your motorcycle. Roof Systems of Dallas, Texas, Jerry Stinchfield, commercial and industrial roofing company with nearly 40 years of experience. Check them out, commercialroofsystems.net. And uh, man, just I can't say it enough. We appreciate Jerry for all he does. Dunlop Motorcycle Tires. Check them out. The official tire of the American Flat Track Series. We're going to do another giveaway. We want to give away a front tire. So a front F5 tire. We want to do a giveaway. Leave us a review on iTunes. Send me that review when you hear this. We'll we'll do it for uh, a few days after we post this. Send me the reviews on iTunes. We're trying to jack them back up after we lost them all. Send me send me a review. Also follow Dunlop and Tank Slapping on Instagram to be eligible, and we'll give away a Dunlop F5 front tire. So yep, leave us a review and and tag us on Instagram with it so we see it. Aim Sports, Aim Sports Data, the world leader in data acquisition, the Solo 2 and Solo 2 DL. I get a lot of questions about this. The GPS lap timer shows you a lot of data. Send me a message. I'll get you that information. We use the AIM Sports um, equipment on our g, g racing bikes. A lot of other teams use it. 
in uh, flat track, road racing, car racing, all around the, the, the industry and motorsports. And the Mootool Slacker, it's the only purpose-built system designed specifically for setting up your motorcycle and mountain bike suspension. It was designed by top leading suspension companies like Factory Connection, Pro Circuit, and, and MB1. Sorry about that. MB1 suspension to assure the accuracy, consistency, and reliability of the tool. The Mootool Slacker. I use them all the time. I use it in my motocross bike at the track. We use it on our twins. Uh, just phenomenal tool. I've been using it for years. Hit me up. I'll get you that information as well. Yeah, just really appreciate all the all the sponsors that make this show happen. Somebody reached out and said, we appreciate the free content week after week. And I just told them to thank the sponsors. They make it happen. So really appreciate their, appreciate their, their support. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm super stoked to be going to this event. Um, Mike Hacker and John Nickens called me up and they want me to come and clickety-click on my computer and do some timing and scoring, which is my second favorite part of racing because it's always cool to get data like live and, and see who's fast because there's one thing I know that I'm going to get people texting me, asking me how their times are, Corey Texter. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm super excited for this show. Fuck the times, dude. I you don't even give you don't even post them, so I don't know. I mean, oh, big big timing and scoring guy, but never post the time. So I don't. Man, know, man, it's super it's super secret. It's password sensitive, and Jared Mees actually paid me money to never tell you your times, and you know as well as I do. Anytime Jared Mees comes off money, it's serious business. So I'm yeah. open to bid. I'm open to bid. Yeah, eh, whatever. Times don't mean. If I got paid by lap times, dude, I'd be a rich guy. I just uh, checkered flag. And hold shot. And, and hold shot. shot. Yeah, yeah, that's that that too. Uh, I guess the biggest news we can talk about. Well, we've kind of known for a few days now. Travis Pastrana racing the AFT Atlanta TT. Thoughts, holy. Man? All I gotta say is holy Santa Claus shit. That's awesome yeah yeah I, I was just scrolling through and i was just checking the pre-entries just wondering how many if there was more than 12 guys racing super twins and uh, i just scrolled over to the singles class just you know curiosity and there he was i was like oh shit so got to the bottom of it and yeah he's racing the tt dude I, you know a lot of so for, obviously the first thing i did was i had i knew the engagement would be insane so I just posted it on Facebook. Hey, Pastrana's oh on the pre-entry list. 500 comments later, here Dude, we are. You know? Not only did you start a fire, but you threw race gas on top of it. And then you just totally dipped out to let me fend off everybody as I'm a Facebook warrior. So I'm up there like Mel Gibson and Braveheart talking about freedom and you're gone. So I'm fighting the whole battle by myself. But Dude, I'm really, really excited about this. You know, I, I am. I'm excited for the sport. This is some. This is some really healthy excitement that the sport has needed. Whether or not you agree or disagree with it, the facts remain the same. That there's going to be a lot of new viewers to American flat track and flat track in general. Whether or not he qualifies doesn't mean shit. The fact that he's on the roster and he's going to be on the track is going to get viewership and that should be the most important thing. Cause that's the ultimate goal is to grow the sport. Yeah. And I, obviously I, I posted that he was coming and then I dipped out because I just knew I didn't have the, uh, I didn't have the commitment to uh, read all the comments, but I'm sure there, I read a couple of them. I'm sure. Yeah, it was, 
I saw you, I saw you were commenting. I was like, all right, he, he's got me. So, uh, yeah, a lot of excitement to, to say the least. I, I'm not sure how he'll do Rob. Like, I, I hope he does well. I think he's gonna obviously have the most fun out of anybody there. He's, he's got a dollar bet. The stakes are high that he's going to beat Ryan Sipes. He bet a dollar with Sipes. Um, so the stakes are high, let me tell you. And he could go out and crush it. Obviously, he's a phenomenal racer. Or he could go out and struggle because it's it's a whole different ball game. Um, a lot of hard front braking. I actually think Atlanta TT is better suited for a road racer than a motocrosser. But you know, one of them things. Like who who knows how it's going to play out. Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody's giving him shit, especially on your freaking Facebook post that oh he didn't do shit last he tried to race but looking back he came out of a one-off event on a framer which is completely different mindset to ride a framer than a dtx bike but at a track like daytona short track which is arguably the hardest track to overcome i mean i said it in one of my posts that there's been multiple times where the grand national champion has watched the race from the sidelines at daytona so that's not a fair shake this time in atlanta will be a fair assessment because everybody's on dtx bikes he'll have what looks like a really good bike being almost a factory ktm so this is a chance for him to show if he's got it or not but he's not going to embarrass himself in my opinion he's going to get out there like you said have a good time have fun he's probably not going to win the race but the dude knows how to race you know if it wasn't for so many injuries he would have probably stayed with Supercross and won a lot more races. But unfortunately, his ankles and knees are made out of soft serve ice cream. So they just can't hold up to the abuse anymore. Yeah, I think people forget that he was on his way to kind of making Ricky Carmichael's career very difficult as a, as a you know, taking away a lot of wins from one of the greatest of all time, yeah. probably until he decided he uh, wanted to jump and do backflips. You know, he, he went the, he had more fun doing the freestyle and things like that. So, but take, taking that aside, Pastrana was a phenomenal racer and he's still a hell of a rider. So yeah, man, it'll be good. I'm excited that those guys like to have fun and it should be, uh, it should be rad. I'm, it, it's really good for the sport. So um looking forward to that. Um, it actually got me thinking Rob too, with, with his age, I didn't know we have an AFT age rule for the singles uh, it's 39 years or younger, and he's actually 37, so he just makes the cut. What are your thoughts on the age, the age rule? Um, I mean, I, I, I get it. I get it, and I don't get it. You know, I mean, I feel like, you know, there's certain guys that, that could come out and, and, and do it that are over the age of 40. You know, there's – well, we've already said – we talked to him before, like Rich King. He still is in great shape. He won a lot of races, like – I don't know. I mean, it's almost like I would rather see it as a discretionary call because let's be honest, we don't need guys that are out there, you know, no offense, no disrespect, but if you're winning the 50 plus class in an amateur event, that doesn't mean go ahead and go get your AFT license. So I get that part of it, but I think there needs to be some discretion because again, I'm just going to use Rich King as an example. I feel like not only can he come out and compete, but He's not going to be doing anything stupid. I mean, let's be honest. The singles class is probably the scariest class there is anyway. So I don't think the 40-plus guys are really going to be that interested in riding that class. But I still, my bottom line is it should be discretionary if they can still turn the lap times or just let them show up, 
let them get their practice and qualifying in. And if they're way off the pace, then say sit sit them down and and be respectful about it and say, look, guys, you know, it's just this isn't for you anymore. I'm sorry, but you know, we gave you the shot, um, and that's it. Because I mean, to be honest with you, Jared Mees is probably what 35. You can't tell me in five years from now he shouldn't be able to race a single if he wanted to. I mean, I just that's how I feel. Same thing with you or Sammy Halbert or anybody that might want to race singles. Yeah, Henry Wiles, he's he's getting up there as well. And that was my biggest thing is why 39? Like, I, I get maybe having an age rule, either making it, like, younger or way older. Like, 39. Like, I'm 33. Like, why am I not well, physically capable? <laughs> well, look at this way. Troy Bayless was winning World Superbike races over the age of 40. Valentino Rossi is in 40 right now. Joe, oh yeah, Joe Cobb, fast qualifier, the first time ever on an Indian. At uh, what mile was that? And he was over 40. Santa Rosa. Yeah, he was. You know he I mean? was so, well over 40. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, be nice, be nice. We love Cobb. <laughs> no, we love Cobb, but, but he got better with age. Like he was contending. Yeah. We've had him on the show and we've talked about it. He was contending for for championships in his forties. So, and that's at the premier level. So yeah, Yeah. I just, I don't really get, I don't really get it. Um, I don't get the 39 deal. I mean, Springer won a national at age 43, you know, that was 21 years ago at Springfield. So, and Moorhead. So, but again, I don't, I still think it's kind of like the whole phrase much ado about nothing because realistically, how many 40 year olds want to come and run singles? I mean, I could see, them running production twins or maybe even super twins like Pegram. I mean, isn't he like 72 years old? So that's not a big deal to me, but I really don't think you're going to have an issue of a whole bunch of middle-aged men getting ready to go do battle with some 16-year-olds with no fear. Well, you're telling but, me if, if Valentino Rossi wanted to race a singles TT national when he's retired, that they would just say, yeah, you're too old, Rossi. You don't make the cut. <laughs> if if somebody from American Flat Track had to make that call, and people, I'm going to go on record here because people always say I swing from AFT's nuts, which is not true, but I will defend somebody when they need to be defended. But I'm telling you right effing now that if that ever happens and Michael Locke or Dave McGrath or Gene Crouch or anybody, and I hope they listen to the show, if they say, no, Valentino Rossi is not racing because he is 41 years old, I'll tell them respectfully as I can right to their face that they're full of shit and I'll, I'll go on record. And then that's with the most respect, but those guys are smart enough to know, look at the draw Rossi had when he freaking came to Indy and was just going to maybe do some parade laps. I mean, the well, place- him, him just being there was, was huge. So, I mean, I wonder realistically though, it's funny you mentioned that because Troy Bayless, same thing right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, look how many people came to watch Troy Bayless road race fans that didn't give two shits about flat track and even though troy bayless kind of sucked on the mile look how many extra people showed up just to watch him to say man i saw a world champion like that's a no-brainer for me like that's where it needs to be a discretionary thing you know yeah and i love bayless bayless is a a cool ass guy but um you know maybe we need to get we gotta get bayless on we will get bayless on i have him on my list my short list of guys but uh, Rossi's just next level. I mean, he's probably the only guy that if I ever met um, racing likewise, that I, I would be like starstruck. I'd be like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, you definitely have a half chub for sure. Uh, yeah, half for just a half. Maybe three yeah. quarter, maybe three quarter, depending on if you shook his hand. Oh, yeah, yeah. That would be, that'd be, that'd be dope. That'd be cool. Um, 
Yeah, and the only other thing I kind of I wanted to talk about, Rob, and it got me thinking with uh, having Chandler on last week, um, how underrated his career was. But why why don't you see flat track guys dominating road racing like the old days? I had somebody ask me that, like, why can't guys go over there, uh, you know, midway through their flat track careers and just start start being competitive at the you know MotoGP level or even Moto America level and it's just different, man, because everybody's sort of like a specialist these days. Um, yep. I mean, there's even Supercross versus Motocross specialists, guys that pretty much are good at Supercross, but not so good at Motocross and vice versa. So, you know, it's just different, different times. Guys train for road racing when they're four years old and they do it almost every day, you know, and the same for same for Moto and Enduro and things like that. So those times were, were really cool and we appreciate them. But, man, it's just just a different ball game these days. Yeah, it really is. And and the the rider window of the ability to go back and forth has shrunk so much due to the specialization of the sports. Because right now, it's funny you mention that. I was on my hand the other day. I was like, man, realistically, we got J.D. Beach and Roger Hayden. I'm trying to think other road racers that could come over like Pegram, even though, I mean, he won a heat race, but like legitly compete in flat track from a road race side there's not that many but there's even fewer from flat track that could go in road race because it's so specialized and the expense is so much greater back in the day you a lot of it was a lot more production based or you could go buy a yamaha tz250 and be on a semi-competitive bike nowadays you know you're gonna have to have a full grave spec r6 or whatever the newest latest greatest thing is you're not gonna go and find like a 2005 gsxr 600 and go qualify to moto america race i mean it's just not going to yeah. happen and it's a well, shame it's, it's hard to it's hard to jump into like it's hard to like it'd be hard for briar you know or meese or whoever you know even myself to take away from what we're doing in flat track and just try to bring on a whole nother career that probably won't work out and then you jeopardize your 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 career as a flat track racer you know and same with moto america like what's what's the draw for them guys to come over besides, you know, it being fun, you know, quote unquote, you're not going to make, not going to make a career out of it. I'd realistically probably see more European dudes, like say some of the guys that train at Rossi's ranch, I would see probably more of them likely to come over and do a one-off race and, and really add to the whole atmosphere in the show than to say, you know, a regular Moto America guy. No, no disrespect to Moto America. I love those guys, you know, but uh, I, I don't, I just don't see it. Is, is, is that it's getting better. It's getting better. And there's more excitement. There's more hype. Like I think that when the Travis Pastrana bombshell drops, that it's going to be open up a whole new level of guys. Cause remember perfect example, look back in the day, how popular Supermoto was at the X games. You had James Stewart signed up to ride. You had Chad Reed riding. Nikki Hayden was riding. So if we can somehow create that excitement to flat track and get some one-off, say, wild cards, now it's going to piss off a lot of the Facebook warriors out there that, you know, don't agree with that. But ultimately, if they're against that, then they're just against the growth of the sport. Wow. They're again, a lot of those guys are against just everything, just uh, all good things. <laughs> we no, don't I like it. <laughs> Angry guy yells at cloud. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Well, I told one guy, I said, man, you know, you need to chill out. You're going to have a stroke just typing on Facebook. And, you know, I won't mention any names. I love the guy. We've had our ups and downs before. He's a great rider. But 
he's definitely got the old school mentality. And I said, I put it point blank. I said, how about this? If you're saying that Travis Pastrana is going to make a mockery out of the sport, does that mean that you agree that anybody that he beats should quit the sport? And it was kind of like crickets. And then he brought up <laughs> Conor McGregor, which was a terrible argument. Like we're talking about motorsports here. And, and let's be honest, you know, it, it, you know, he'll know real quick after the first two sessions, but he's got such a good group behind him. I would be surprised if he wasn't, you know, on a practice track because he's going to have a lot of fun, but you know, he's going to take it seriously. He does not like to lose even though he knows he's probably not going to win but he does not want to embarrass himself so he's going to be training for sure yeah and there's a dollar at stake i mean nobody That's wants so to much. lose a dollar those no, so up, much money so, i mean yeah. how many dollars have you lost to me on xr 100 it's like a thousand um dude every xr 100 race we we like say we're gonna do you're too busy on facebook talking about hey, twins bullshit. And never, never show didn't, up, so. didn't me and dalton beat you at at uh parent house no i won that money what are you talking about no the the road race portion on 100 i won that too i didn't win but i beat you guys we got third oh are you talking about the team race yeah duh oh my oh gosh. you how convenient you forget when i paddled your ass on xr 100s you didn't beat me you beat my team my guy i think my teammate was like 70 years old it was like some random pairing i'm like all right Look, man, Set me up for look, you can remember it however you want to. I just remember holding that <laughs> big trophy up. I remember how Amber Texter looked me in the eyes and she was so impressed and basically just ruined your weekend. Oh, uh, yeah. I just remember <laughs> going to uh, the Herring Compound and I you run the through those 100s so hard. I remember I had like carpal tunneling in my right arm from like trying <laughs> to keep the throttle wide open for that long. Uh, hey, I, we got to get Heron on too, dude. We got to get Heron. Oh, Heron would totally come on board, and I, and and we need to because I have so many good stories with him that uh, that it wouldn't. Again, it's going to be hard to top Kenny Roberts, but but Heron would be a legit one. Actually, I'm I've got his number, so I'll reach out if you want me to because he would be a good one. But I hey, texted speaking him, of, he said he'd come on, and I texted him. He never got back, so uh, he's terrible. Heron, he's, call us back, bro. But remember, I don't know if you were there, but remember, Heron was respectable at Savannah. And I'll tell you why he's respectable. He wasn't going to win, but this was the old Savannah. He'd never even dirt tracked before, got on a 450 that he never rode. And he was beating some fast dudes. As a matter of fact, you know, not saying I'm fast, but he was right in front of me, and I can remember it like it was yesterday. He was – you could tell his form was just pure shit, but he was so aggressive, and he was on the front so hard that he tucked the front, and I swear I saw his face scraping across – the, the you know how that track gets. I mean, it got a good groove. And I was laughing so hard I lost all concentration because I could see his face in his helmet just shredding the face shield. It was like slow motion to this day. And his badass <laughs> road race, out his custom Alpine stars were stained orange, and he was so butthurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's super aggressive uh, on and off the track. So, yeah, we'll definitely uh, – it's another one. We're just racking up guests here as we as we as we go along the show. But man, yeah. let's no further no further chatting, man. Let's get Randy Goss on. Uh, I want to chat with this legend, man, and get to know him. So let's let's call up Randy Goss. Let's do it. On the line right now, Randy Goss. Randy, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, good. Corey Texter here, Rob McClendon. We appreciate you taking the time to come on our show. What have you been up to? 
Well, right now I, I live down in Florida. I, I moved to Florida after I left North Carolina. Ha <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I drive school bus, school bus driver. No way. That's awesome. We were just talking about uh, Florida, literally right before you came on the show, Rob McClendon's from Pensacola. And I spent a lot of time in Port Orange when I'm down there over the winter training. So uh, Rob's on the line right now. He's my co-host. Rob, uh, what do you have for Randy? Man, I, I, we've actually got a lot for Randy. Um, I hope he's uh, I hope he's okay with our unfiltered and uh, unscripted show because uh, number one, I want to make him smile and I want him to go and tell all his buddies that man, Rob McClendon, he he kind of hurt my feelings. That he was a really cool guy, so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> all right. Well, let's all right. Sounds good. Let's get into it. You're a, a two-time champion, 1980 and 1983. Uh, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit further along in the show, but. I like to hear from you guys on your, your mini bike days, like the amateur days, how that all got started. What made you kind of get into the flat track stuff? Well, for me, it was, uh, what got me started was an elementary school teacher give us an open book and said, Hey, think up a project you want to do and do it. And I built a mini bike. I'd found an old junk frame and, some go-kart tires and built a mini bike and I was hooked on two wheels from from that day on what kind of motor did you use are we talking like a, a cool motor or just like one of them little Briggs and Stratton no. kind of things yeah just all junk Briggs and Stratton uh just you know anything you could scrounge up so, what did it yeah. dyno at yeah it did she didn't dyno at all. It, it ran all right. But then that, that led me over to the local gravel pit. And that's where most kids started back then. You, you went to the local gravel pit, and then you figured out where the first scrambles were. That's what they called them back then, scrambles. And and then that was the era when the motocross was just getting big. The Europeans were just starting to come over, and and uh, it was starting to, starting to catapult. I like it. So you got your... Yeah, I love it, man. Getting your start, learning how to, I'm sure with the gravel, that that uh, that would play a big part in, I guess, the learning how to slide aspect of the sport, I would assume, right? Yeah, I motocrossed for quite a few years. Um, actually, I followed the, the Florida Series motocross, and where you, back then in the 70s, like 73, uh, 72, 73, 74, you'd have to come to Florida and and follow a six race series to be able to qualify. So I, I did a bunch of that uh, before I eventually led me into flat track. Well, when you dipped into the flat track stuff and you started to kind of progress through the ranks from amateur to the pro stuff, who were the guys that you kind of battled with throughout the amateur ranks as you made that transition to the pros? Like who were the top guys in your local region and, uh, and things like that on your way to getting your pro license? Well, you know, I was from Heartland, Michigan, so that's just a half hour south of Flint. Oh, wow. So that was like the hotbed. That was the hotbed for Friday night at Auto City, which is a local, you know, it was a high bank short track clay, and uh, they run K-70s tires back then, and, and it was, you know, Ted Booty and Darth Brow and Jay Springsteen and Kenny Springsteen and Charlie Chapel and John Zawarkin and just a just a ton of really really talented guys so it was it was competitive in every class i like how the old school guys like yourself 
whenever you guys say like the tracks you raced at, like you, you basically could have lined up and raced against any guys that could win nationals. Right. I mean, it seems like, like now you got outlaws and it's like, all right, well, I hope there's a couple fast guys there, but it seems like in the good old days, like relatively easily, you could go and race some guys that maybe had just won a national and all of them could qualify for nationals. I mean, just the names you just listed are, are some pretty heavy hitters. Yeah. Well, and that's, that was the days of everybody like Jay Springsteen started on a 100 Kawasaki baby green streak. I don't know if you guys remember what that was, but there was a time when everybody had 100 Kawasaki's and that was a pretty hot class. Yeah. It's, um, it's, and that's what started it. Uh, it's kind of funny. And, and then also, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the people you mentioned, not only are they good riders, they're, they're hall, hall of fame riders, Garth Brow, Jay Springsteen. And I knew you were from Michigan, but for some reason that slipped my mind when we started talking here. Um, yeah. I mean, that's kind of, everyone talks about Michigan or, or California, Pennsylvania being hotbeds for racing. And when you have guys like that competing with every weekend, you know, iron sharpens iron. So it's, it's, you know, it's almost one of them deals where if you want to win, if you can win locally, you can almost win at the top level racing guys like that every weekend. Yeah. And that, and also in the wintertime, you know, they, everybody ice race. I mean, Potter's Lake was a big, every, all the same guys would be at the same, same ice race. So there's, there's a lot of competition and it, and it just pushed each other. Man, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty awesome. I'm sitting here. Actually, I've got another Michigan rider with me and I asked him, and he's like, man, I've never heard of that place before. So that must be, that must be uh, a little hidden gem. Potter's Lake. Well, it used to be open where anybody could show up there on a Sunday when the ice was good. I don't know if it's still open. I've been gone for so many years, but there used to be the lakes that you could get on that you knew froze first. And uh, you know, our first national back then was always the Houston Astrodome. So you could be, you could run thousands of laps before you left for Houston. Well, I, I read online that you actually worked with Bart Markle quite a bit coming up through the ranks. You know, you, I guess he was kind of your mentor in a way. So how did that relationship start? And, uh, and what was Bart like? Like, I obviously I've never got, got to meet him, but I've heard many, many good stories. He was actually my grandpa, Texas favorite rider. He would always talk about Bart. So how did that relationship kind of start? Well, I rode for Bart for two years and, uh, it was I was lucky to do that because not necessarily what he taught me about riding, but just his the way he went at life and every everything that he did. Um, but we weren't that successful. Uh, Bart was still working full time at AC Spark Plug, and then he was working on the bikes at night. And uh, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of success, but I can tell you there's there's a ton of stories that. Well, like the first time that Ted Booty and I went to Ascot Park, uh, Bart told us he thought we were a bunch of women if we didn't go out there. He said, you guys don't even go out there, you know. So that was our, our first challenge to go to Ascot Park, all because, you know, Bart had challenged us to go there. So. Well, so that brings up the question, how did you guys do in your first – I'm a huge Ted Booty fan also. Um, you know, I know, unfortunately, the accident, he's not with us anymore, but I would like to know, <laughs> for for research purposes, how uh, how did your first trip to Ascot go? Did you go there? Did they come back and 
knocked knocked your dicks in the dirt or what? No, I think we did fair. We didn't we didn't win first trips out there, but I think we did okay. We learned a lot, and uh, you know, just the trip getting out there was big for us in those days. So, but uh, yeah, it was it was a good time. Well, they called you Mister Consistency. (laughs) I didn't learn a lot uh, from Bart chassis wise and stuff. Um, because Bart was such a good rider himself that, uh, you know, the, the transition didn't really start for us until about 78 or 79 when guys were really starting to learn the, the stuff that the old guys knew, like Neil Keen, you know, how to, how to change your clamps and how to change your head angle and what a big difference it made. And Bart, he never really bought into that stuff. He was such a good rider. He just, go by and run into him and won a race, you know? So that was, that was a big transition time on, on learning what changes made to a motorcycle. Yeah. I mean, you see that a lot now you see guys that are just um, really talented riders that don't really give it, you know, they don't give a shit about anything to do with the chassis setup or anything else. And then you have guys, you know, like, you know, the Bart Markles and uh, riders today that, that, um, yeah, that yeah, it's just different styles, you know. It's it's pretty cool to hear those kind of stories. And I, I heard Bart was one guy you didn't want to mess with. I mean, if you were if you were in a bar fight after the race, Bart was one of those guys you wanted on your side. So I I heard he was a, a an absolute animal on and off the racetrack. So uh, I always like hearing Bart Bart stories. Those are those are always really really good to hear. But yeah, they they called you Mister Consistency. Why why was that? Were you just um pretty much always up front, all types of racetracks. I mean, you have 16 national wins, so you won your fair share of races as well. Yeah, I didn't win a ton, but uh, my strategy was I I knew I didn't have more talent than everybody, but I knew that the goal was to score more points than everybody back then. So figure out how to score more points than the rest of the guys to to be in the top at the end. So that, that was pretty much my goal most of the time. Um, so when you, well, speaking of consistency, obviously the name of the game, the championships are your worst days. You got to salvage points, right? So what, what's the track that you went to that you're like, oh shit, man, I just, I got to come out of here with some points. Cause I, I mean, and don't take this as disrespect, but just as a racer, I'm like, there's certain tracks where, you know, you just maybe are going to suck at that day. Is there anything that sticks out in your mind? Like for me, it was always Peoria. Yeah, um, well, for me, I didn't really have tracks that I didn't want to go to, but the problem being is you can go, it's not like car racing or anything you've ever done before. Motorcycle racing, some guy, if, if enough guys see you in the heat race, you're not in the main event. So yeah, I, went to Houston, I went to Houston Astrodome with the number one place and didn't make the main event one year. So... But uh, yeah, those are the problems. And and one year, one year racing for the championship, I didn't make Tulsa. I got I got beaten uh, in the last in the semi. And uh, that's just the way it was. If you get beat that day, you're not in the main event. So the, the goal always was get in the main event, score some points. Would you consider yourself? Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, sorry, Corey. I had one quick follow up on that. Would you consider yourself? You know, everybody's got their specialties, I guess. And then, you know, you're consistent. So, like Jared Meese, comparing to him, he's he's basically really good everywhere. 
but if you had a downside, would it be like short track TTs, half miles or miles or re did, cause you don't have a grand slam, I guess, but I mean, would you consider yourself a strongest short tracker or a big track or what? Um, my weakest point was the, the miles. Um, I was more of a stop and go guy. You know what I mean? So short track, the Houston short track fit me real good where you could figure your line out, get in hot and then and get turned and get off straight. But, um, the miles, I guess, were my weakness, but, um, I think I, I think I did win a race and everything but road racing. Yeah. I was going to say you, you, you have the dirt track grand slam, which is, which is awesome. There's only a, you know, a, a couple handful of guys that have that. So, um, you know, we talked about it a little bit. You won 16 nationals, 47 podium finishes from 1979 to 1986. So in a seven year span, you were on the podium 47 times, which is, uh, is phenomenal. When you look at the guys you raced with back then, uh, there was, you know, the competition was stacked, a lot of good riders, younger, like the younger guys coming up through like Springer and those guys. And you still had the, the older guys who were still contending week in and week out. Who were kind of your rivals coming through the pro ranks? Uh, like, who were you battling with titles back then? Um, like, who was, who was the guy you had to go through every year to win those championships? Well, my kid won it one year from me, but, but uh, Ricky Graham and Schobert were the – I guess Graham was my biggest, biggest rival. Um, so, yeah, it, it was tough. It was tough skidding back then, but um, it, it's tough nowadays. It's tough every, everywhere, you know. Yeah, but I mean, realistically, you just said that one of your biggest rivals, Ricky Graham, so that automatically makes you have some huge ass nuts because that's that's badass right there. Well, to beat Ricky Graham, something's got to happen to Ricky. You know what I mean? When, when he was racing, you're you're not gonna beat him heads up, talent to talent. There's just there's just very very few guys that ever did that when he was on. So you had to figure another way to beat him, and you either had to have problems or you know, you could beat him a few races, but uh, you just had to outscore him. Yeah, it's uh, talent doesn't always. I've, I talked to Chris Carr quite a bit. He's a good friend of mine. He always tells me talent doesn't always win races or championships. You just got to figure out how to get to that checkered flag first. So uh, I really like that aspect of what you just said. And you mentioned Mike Kidd, and he won the the championship in 1981. And now I know it's a tough one to probably to talk about for you, but. That was a really challenging year. You know, you won the title in 1980, and then you, you lost it. I, I forget what happened, but it was came down to the last few races. I think you had some bad luck. Um, but then you rebounded from it. But let's talk about that 1981 title defense. Um, you know, after being a champion, more so, what did you learn from 1981 that helped you the rest of your career? Well, 81, we were probably going to do it again. But um, I think that was the year we had a oil line come off in the heat race the year and we got black flag and I didn't pull in finished thinking I would transfer to the main and start last, but they didn't let me race the main. So I had to spot them a race in 81 um, with no points. I think that's the right year. I might be wrong, but um, yeah. And it was, it's always the same. It was always the same thing. Those years we were racing for the championship up until, well, 84 is when I got hurt at the San Jose Mile uh, in a tight battle with, with Ricky 
and Bubba for the points. So yeah, 84 was the best year I ever got out of myself as a rider, as far as doing the, you know, getting a hundred percent out of myself every week, weekend and week out. So, uh, you know, you know, you sometimes the year you win the championship isn't the year you rode the best, the most. So, yeah. So moving ahead a little bit, obviously you had like a crazy, amazing career. What, what brought you to the point where you were just like, all right, I'm, I'm done with flat track. Was it, was it like just lack of good equipment or were you just kind of burned out? Cause you had successfully won the championship. So, I mean, I've never been in that position, so forgive me, but it feels like you didn't have anything else to prove. So what kept you going? And then ultimately what was the determining factor just to hang it up? For me, it was a combination of being burned out and getting hurt. So 84, when I broke my leg real bad, um, I came back and I left the factory and went to ride for Gary Griffith that year mm-hmm. on the Honda. And uh, we went to Houston, one short track, and then I crashed in the TT, but we were back at Ascot. I went back to Ascot TT and I fell down and practiced in the mud and I rebroke my leg. Um, but it had, it had a plate on it. So it, what happened is it just flexed it so far, it broke the bone again, but I could still walk on it. So I raced 85 that way the rest of the season, hurt, and then got a bone grafted that year and came back in 80, 86 was my final season. So basically burned out and hurt is what made me decide. Wow. To yeah, that's. And you guys raced a lot of a lot of events back then. I mean, now we're I think we're at seven. We race anywhere from sixteen to eighteen events right now. But uh, but y'all raced a lot, right? Was it in 20, 24, 26 races? And there's a lot of events that takes a toll on your body. Yeah, yeah. It was there was a lot of races. Well, early on, before they changed it, you went to the West Coast three times early on. You go up to Castle Rock. You go to San Jose. You go to Ascot. You, you go across the United States from um, Syracuse Mile to the Sacramento Mile three times in the early days. So, yeah. Well, and that's also not considering that back in the day, you always hear, you know, the good old days, which I swear I wish I was a part of, but you'd have like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, like outlaw races, and then you'd still have your national. So you guys sometimes are racing – three or four times a week, right? You could. And the guys that just raced for money knew how to do that. Um, I did it a few times. Willie Crabb and I went down and we, I think it was Monday night was 10th Facindo short track, Tuesday night, Granite City in St. Louis and Wednesday night, uh, Santa Fe Park in Chicago. And then you'd go to the national, but you couldn't keep that pace up. You wouldn't have equipment. Yeah. Back. So, uh, but McClure and Poovey and all those guys, J.R. Rawls and all those guys, they hit all those races and put the money. Right well, it's kind of crazy, actually. I, I so, heard the old, yeah. like th- those days, you pretty much, if your bike had a malfunction or a mechanical in like qualifying or, or whatever, in a, in a heat race, you were done for the day. Uh, you didn't really pull out a backup bike 
you know, so, so back then, yeah, if you had a mechanical, it wasn't like you could just grab another bike, go to, you know, line up for the main event and go. So I'm sure, you know, guys nowadays, we're, we're kind of cautious on what events we do to save our equipment. And we, and we have two or three backup bikes in the truck. I can't imagine back then um, not really having, having that option, really, you know, you pretty much, <laughs> if you had a mechanical, right. Is that right? You were pretty much done for the day. Golly. Yeah. Yeah. You were. Huh? Yeah. Well, yep. you talked a little bit about him earlier on the show, but you mentioned Garth Brow and he's a Michigan guy. And I know you competed with him for rookie of the year. I, I don't know the year exactly, but you guys went toe to toe and what's your relationship like with Garth? I still see Garth quite a bit in Florida, man. He's a trip. So I, you know, what was that like going against him? Uh, same, same state as you, you know, going, going for rookie of the year. What year was that? Rookie of the year. Oh man. I, I don't, I, I just, I got some notes from a, from a friend of mine and he said that he thought that you were, you were going for rookie of the year. Was it, was Garth Brow your, your biggest guy then? Or? I can't remember. I, I remember going against him as a junior, I think. Yeah. As a junior, but I don't remember the, the expert, okay. but you know, Gonzo, he was, it was unbelievable when he, uh, when they put him on that first, that white heart 750, he was so small. It was, it was unbelievable to watch him ride that thing. It, it really was a true, a true talent. But I was also in the race at the Decoin mile. If I got my numbers right, the first year Scotty Parker won the Decoin mile. I don't know. You can probably find some video on that. And that thing shook its head the whole race. Uh, like bad enough where you're like, I'm going to wreck, shook its head. <laughs> and Scotty didn't know no better. He went on and won. I think I forget how old he was for his first race. That was impressive. That was really impressive. But I'll tell you another impressive thing I've seen was I've seen Jay Springsteen at the Syracuse Mile blister of front tires. It's, yeah, I, think, I can believe that. You know, <laughs> I can believe that for sure. Yep. Man, yeah, I uh, I'm actually lucky to race against Springsteen on dirt and asphalt, and it's crazy the the talent of that dude, and and he's just one of the nicest guys ever. Too, I've said that before, and I'm gonna say it till the day I die. But that dude has got to be one of the coolest in my book. Yeah. It, and the thing most people don't realize, you get in racing and you set your goals and it's, it's all about winning and how well you can do. But the thing about Jay Springsteen is he, he truly enjoys racing that motorcycle. That's what he gets out of it the most. He just enjoys racing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yep. Yeah. I think you see that. You see that too with his personality and, and that's why he's always been such a fan favorite is, uh, is just his personality. We were at Volusia this year, the, our season opener, and he actually walked down. There's a big-ass hill to come down to where I was pitted, and he actually came down just to say hi to me. I was like, what are you doing, man? And he just came down to say hi and, and talk. So, yeah, no, a, a lot of fans, you know, I've, I've read. I, I didn't get to watch you. Unfortunately, I was, I was born in 87, so the year yeah. after you retired, but – a lot of fans were, you know, you had more of a shyer personality from what I've read. You kind of stuck to yourself, didn't really get involved in any drama or controversy, but um, did you have any big rivals? Did you have guys that you sort of hated racing with? We like to get into the, 
the the rivalries a little bit on the show. Um, a, any guys that you just kind of got tangled with I, in a race here or there? I don't really. Like that? I didn't really hate him, but you know, like I said before, Graham was a rival just because he was going to beat me for the championship. Um, but he was the he was the most competitive rival I had. Of course, Springer was getting sick along those years when when I was winning my championships. He was. He was in that area where he was getting sick and misses races, so he he couldn't score enough points back then. So see, yeah, yeah. See, I don't I don't honestly even want to hear about the rivals. I, I gotta ask, man. Like of all the all the races there, who was your guy that was you know, man? Fuck that guy. Like you just don't. He don't have to be even fast, but he could just been some squid that got out there and was not supposed to be there. I don't care, but. Like, every racer's got that one guy. Like, my guy is Corey Texter. Like, when I go to show up at the racetrack, I'm putting him into the fence. Like, who is your fuck-that-guy guy? Um, I would have to say Gary Scott, number one. Yeah, Gary Scott. And he was an easy guy not to like, but uh, a heck of a racer, you know. But, yeah. Corey, didn't somebody else pick Gary Scott? I, I think so, man. Or maybe it was Hank. I think it was Gary, though. Yeah, they were phenomenal riders, but I, I heard they were tough guys to kind of go out and have a beer with after the race. Uh, I know Hank Scott doesn't like me, and I never even met the guy. So, um, Wait, why doesn't he like you? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I've just heard that. I've heard he's he's not a big C-Tex fan, so it's all good. Yeah, I, I don't blame him, but uh, no, that's – I love that segment. That's – yeah, we all, we, we all have those guys, you know, sort of – sort of who you don't like dealing with but i was talking you know with somebody you know about peoria and things like that and back in your era kind of guys could kind of pick if they wanted to kind of tt the single or the twin what did you prefer riding at peoria i mean what did you more of a a single cylinder guy or did you like riding the xrs they didn't do that till late i forget what year but i i was at well let's see when did they come out with the rotex and let us ride it um I always rode the 750, you know, at Peoria, the 750 Harley, and that was before they messed around with the jump at all. So I don't know what the jump's like since they worked on it. But back then, when you hit the jump on a 750 Harley, it just crushed the suspension. And then when it launched, you would always launch the back wheel the wrong direction. You see them come off that jump and it wants to, the back wheel wants to go left, and then you, and then you land and do a big tank slapper. Have you ever seen that video of Graham crashing there off oh, the jump yeah. on a oh, seven? Yeah. Oh yeah. Tech field? Yeah. yeah. That's what it did. That's the feeling you got for whatever it was, twenty or twenty-five laps every time you hit that jump. <laughs> that's that's just the feeling. Peoria is like uh, an an incredible. If you can run good there, it's incredible on a seven fifty. But you better be ready to race when you get there. That's for sure. I can I can tell you a story about there. I, I forget what year it was, but my mechanic from Harley, Brent Thompson, he uh, which was the perfect mechanic for me because he, I when I got to the factory, I already knew what I wanted. I knew my setups. I knew you know the engine I brought with me. There was faster than their stuff when I got there. You know I knew how to squish the pistons. I knew how to time the cams. I knew how to get the 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 sump dried up, and I had really fast bikes when I got there but Brent so we're at Peoria and Brent says to me he says uh, before practice he says listen I, I'm going to need 100% out of you today bud you're going to have to 
you're going to have to dig deep. And I'm like, all right, I'm there. So I go out and practice. I come off the jump, just hauling. Turn right. Have you ever been there, Corey? Do they still race there? Oh, yeah. Yep. You know, yep. you turn. So I turn right. I'm hauling. I turn right, but I get there late. And then I flick it back to the left. And I'm late there. And I run into the hay bales. It spits me up on the tank. And I save it from wrecking, finish practice, come back in. And my mechanic says, you're trying hard enough. <laughs> Don't try any harder. He didn't want to have to, after he gave me the pep talk, he didn't want to have to fix nothing. <laughs> That's kind of what I say to my three-year-old. I'm like, I have a three-year-old that rides and I'm like, all right, buddy, you got to go fast. Got to go fast. And then he's, he's coming around the corner, feet are flying. All right, slow down, slow down. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah. So, uh, do you follow the sport at all today? Um, I do. I, I, I you know, wh what, what's, okay. I do. I watched, um, actually, um, I watched, uh, Volusia and I get it on, uh, and I, I mirror it to my TV with Apple TV and, and it's awesome. Actually what they've done this year with the TV stuff of, instead of just showing commercial after commercial, they go and show some of the old races and stuff, you know? It's pretty darn good. And they got some. They got some good camera shots. So I watched all of Volusia and was. I was impressed with everything I've seen. I mean, the racing was so good. Everybody talks about the old days, but I'm telling you, uh, it's it's pretty neat to watch. And there's something I've I've been kind of thinking about is that that 450 class. It's so competitive. I would like to see them get all the manufacturers involved and have at least three factory riders per manufacturer. I don't know how they pull that off, but as an old racer, um, they got to get more guys getting salary. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as a, as a current racer, I, I couldn't agree more. Let's get paid more. So no, that's cool. Uh, uh, anybody out there today that maybe reminds you of yourself a little bit, riding style or demeanor, things like that? Is there anybody you, you kind of relate to or just enjoy watching? I just enjoy watching the, you know, the races and, and how, how competitive everything is. It's, it's just good racing. You know, after I left there, you know, I went on, I worked on, road race cars. I worked on GTP cars and Trans Am cars. And then I, and then when I went to work for Roush, I worked on the trucks nationwide. I worked on cup cars and, uh, you know, there's nothing like motorcycle racing, just nothing, especially as a rider because the adrenaline rush and think about it. You hear them talking about arrow and balance and all this stuff in cars. You are the arrow and you are the balance on a motorcycle so yeah it's just it's fun to watch it's fun to watch the kids coming up it's fun to watch your sister putting it on them at, at Volusia that was you know when they bumped her off the groove I thought oh that's over and guess what wasn't over <laughs> so it's, it's, no yeah it's I can tell you for 100% certainty that she is pretty stubborn <laughs> yep so but that's a big thing I, I see is, you know, how many racers get a salary in racing today? How many are getting a salary? When I was racing, it was what, me and Jay and Scotty and 
And then, you know what I mean? Three guys out of everybody making a salary. That's, that's crazy. You know, you gotta, you gotta put some money in the bank when you're, when you're racing. And, and, uh, I think I would, I don't know how to do it, but I, it'd be cool to see a lot more guys making a paycheck. Yeah. I'm not sure who all's, you know, I'm not privy to that information, but luckily I, I feel like it is getting better. You know, you've got now KTM stepped up with two riders. Um, Honda's putting a lot of support through to the Turner racing team. Now I'm not, again, I'm not sure what their salary like, but it is, a, I know it's a factory supported effort. And then, uh, I'm not sure Corey might know better on like the Wally Brown guys. Cause they're a, I think they're like a car racing team that's getting into the sport, but I don't know as far as paychecks go, but, um, you know, yeah, we would all like to see more money everywhere. And, and I think it's on the up and up. I mean, just the, the sign of factory involvement, you know, I think that's the, the building block to get more salaries and, and get more viewers. Cause ultimately that's the name of the game. You know, the more viewers that show and watch, then that shows the manufacturers that, hey, we need to spend some more money on this stuff, you know, because, hell, Supercross started out at some point. Now look at them. I mean, half the field yeah. didn't hate, I would at least guess. Well, they need to have a short track in between the Supercrosses. When they do them three-day shows, they need to just make the short track right in between them. And then all your, your manufacturers are already there, you know. Yeah, you, you read my mind with that one. You read my your, mind. And your TV guys are already there. That's not, And nobody even wants to ever talk about TV money, but if it wasn't for TV money, there wouldn't even be a NASCAR, you know? Yeah. So that's what's keeping them guys rolling. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, Rob mentioned Wally Brown, and you're actually good friends with Wally Brown, and you were a NASCAR crew chief. I want to say, was it Greg Biffle you, you were a crew chief for? Um so you left flat track talk about your career after that and how you got involved in the, in the NASCAR world. Well, it's kind of a, it's kind of a long story, but I, when I, when I quit flat tracking, I got a job in Brighton, Michigan. It was just up the road from where I lived and that they had a, a little race, uh, road race team, Trans Am team called cars and concepts. And I worked there a couple of years and then, that place went under and, and a whole bunch of us, I think there's 10 or 12 of us went over to a place called Pratt and Miller. They, they're the Corvette guys now, the Corvette teams that runs the 24 hours and that stuff. And I worked at Pratt and Miller's on the GTP car. And you might remember the, the GTP car that Kendall got left in at Watkins Glen. Okay. Remember that one? Uh, those, no, types, I don't. those types of cars. Yeah. But uh, anyways, um, we worked there and then a few years and then they lost their contract with GM and there was about 12 of us that went to Roush from Pratt and Miller's. Danny Banks was one of them. A whole bunch of us went to Roush and then we run uh, Trans Am cars. We went to 24 hours a couple years. Actually, I worked on, uh, I crew chief Paul Newman's car at 24 hours one year at Daytona. And then uh, we started we were all at Roush. We started the truck team. That's when uh, uh, Ford decided they wanted to start developing their own chassis. They didn't want to just buy chassis from uh, Ronnie Hopkins and Hutch and those guys. They wanted to build their own chassis. So that's where Jack got enough money to, to start, you know, 
that's what it's out with. It's, it's not about going and racing trucks. It's about how much money can I get from the manufacturers to develop this. And we, we built trucks from scratch up there in Michigan. We built the chassis. We built everything from scratch. Hung the bodies and went racing. So um, that's how I got started in NASCAR. I worked for Joe Ruckman. Uh, we won a few races. And then when Greg Biffle came along, uh, 99, we were going to win the championship, but we got caught with a, a part that they didn't like. So we lost, we lost the championship by eight points. And then... Um, 2000, we won the truck championship, and that's when I moved to North Carolina. I went to North Carolina, and we moved up to the nationwide slash Bush series. And we raced, uh, I think we were second or third in 01 and 02. We won the nationwide championship. And then the next year, I went to Cup, and I, I made it eight months in Cup, and Jack fired me. But we won one race. We won the Firecracker. Uh, Firecracker 400 one year, and uh, that was that's pretty much my NASCAR career in a nutshell right there. But it's nothing like bike racing. It's uh, bike racing. You know, you're going across the country. You're making your own plan. You're doing your own stuff. It's it's, it's way different than that. You just in, in NASCAR, you just work all the time, all the time. Uh, so that's pretty much it on that. Wow. Yeah, that's well, that's awesome. <laughs> that was a, a really good elevator pitch for everything you've done in NASCAR, which it was is a lot of cool stuff. So yeah, I didn't I didn't know all that. That's definitely interesting information. Uh, I got a couple more questions here and then we'll let you we'll let you get back to it. But uh, I like to ask this kind of to some of the legends of the sport. If you had to pick like a Mount Rushmore for the, the four guys in, in flat track, who who would the, who would that be? Who would be on your Mount Rushmore? Uh, that I competed against? Uh, just in general, like over the history of the sport, like who would who would be on your Mount Rushmore of flat track racing? Uh, well, Ricky for sure, just because he was such a tough competitor. Um, man, that's a tough <laughs> it's one. so tough. You don't know who to, you know, it's, it's hard. You got to put Jay on there. You got to put... Uh, you know, Bubba on there. Um, yeah. Parker. And yeah, you, you, yeah, I didn't race Scotty as much. Uh, uh, he was, see, when Scotty was racing me in my era, Scotty was uh, running the top and making mistakes. You know what I yep. mean? Scotty would be, yeah. So he hadn't came into his own when I quit, when I, when I left racing, he had, he came into his own after that, where he was, he was the veteran and, and doing the things to win the races. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, older guys didn't have a lot of friends racing like they do nowadays. Even in NASCAR, you see, you know, they're more, they're more I don't know. The older guys just stayed to themselves more, I guess. And, uh, but I was pretty good friends. I was really good friends with Alex Jorgensen. And uh, I learned a lot of stuff from Jorgie on how to short track and, and TT and, and stuff like that. So we, we developed Rotax um, together when we had that. We, we'd go out in California there on the, the paved streets and we'd do uh, roll-on testing 
carburetor off the bottom like your TT racing or short track and carburetor off the bottom and see whose bike would come on the easiest, smoothest, most controllable, but then accelerate like crazy. You change a cam. We just spend the day out there, change cam timing, change swap carburetors, pipes. Uh, so Jordy and I developed a lot of stuff and he taught me a lot of things about short track racing. So I think I'm going to have to put him on Mount Rushmore. Oh, see, I, li- I like that because I'm a Norton guy, and he was a Norton guy. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I'll you, definitely. A lot of people didn't see, like, Santa Fe Wednesday nights was a big deal. If anybody, probably you guys probably never even seen Santa Fe Park, but uh, Wednesday nights was bike night, so you could – I could hit Santa Fe Park with my factory two-stroke on uh, Wednesday night and then go back up to Milwaukee and then leave from Milwaukee and go to the Nationals. But Jordan had a Can-Am two-stroke that he was winning a lot of them Wednesday night races with. Um, so we could, you could learn, I learned a ton of stuff watching Jordan because he would, he, he taught me how he would go down the corner, down the straightaway wide open and then downshift getting in and leave it wide open you'd have to see it to believe it you downshift leave it wide in not 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 do anything break and then it set him up for the corner without any his chassis didn't change and then he just rolled it on and leave down the back straight away and power shift up shift but um the downshift leaving it wide open was was pretty was a pretty cool thing at santa fe on that glazed over clay so yeah you can learn a lot of stuff from him but hey i got one for you all right two years ago i went i went to la and i went down and see mike libby you guys probably don't know who mike libby is but he was cr axel's right hand man all those years when he built the, the very best cylinder head i don't know if you guys know who axel yeah is. I, I know the name oh yeah the name yep yeah yeah. But I went to see Mike, Mike Libby, and, and he showed me the old original dyno and and all the porting tools and all the stuff that Axe did his cylinder heads with. Mike showed it to me. And, uh, yeah, it was incredible because those guys were, were ahead, of, ahead of the curve. Um, but it, it was incredible to see that, that stuff still around. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's There's a lot of guys that – got horsepower from CR Axel, that's for sure. I mean, oh, wasn't, I'm pretty sure he was one of Ron Wood's motor guys too, wasn't he? Like, didn't he build a lot of Ron Wood stuff? Yeah. Well, that's how them guys got ahead. That, that's what they did at night. They met over at Axel's and they, they dyno stuff, you know? And that's so cool. Ron was, but, but Axe was, um, he was the master at, he had the smallest ports with the most flow back then for your mile bike so he just didn't go most slow he had the smallest ports with the most slow and and uh his stuff always ran so switching gears real quick and this is another segment i love to hear about because everybody's everybody's got one but what is looking back at everything you rode except for your mini bike because you already said that was kind of crappy but what is the biggest pile of shit that you ever rode? And you're like, man, get me off of this hunk of shit. I don't want to ride it anymore. Like, what would be your bike? 
Well, man. <laughs> There's no wrong answers. <laughs> it, it, it's uh, the bike I didn't like the way it handled was around Wood Rotax. Oh, wow. I know really? you're not going to believe it. You're going to start a Rotat. fire with that comment. Oh, yeah. For me, you're probably going to get some bad hate mail, too. <laughs> well, all you got to do is, is pull up some of the old videos and watch Ricky Graham on his on his uh, night chat. He just put a whipping on everybody. And uh, that's when when Harley bought those Renwood Rotaxes for us. I, I didn't like the way it handled. And once I bought, I basically copied what Tex Peel and, and Ricky Graham did. And once I got on what their stuff, what they had, I could compete with them. And it's just as simple as that, you know. The problem yeah. is you hurt people's feelings along the way when you start when you start doing that stuff. But um, for me, you know, that that was it. Uh, there's only really, I mean, how many bikes have you ever ridden that really, really do what you want them to? Just a handful, right, of all of them? <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, I gotta say, I got I got one right now that I just love. I can't wait to get it out some more but uh but i'm not at your level or Corey's level or anybody else's level so i've definitely had my hand full of uh of shitty bikes <laughs> it's just crazy because yeah. uh yeah i mean i've heard people either love or hate the the wood the wood framed bikes and some guys ride them and they're phenomenal. Like the way you can work the front end and the way you can kind of ride them so aggressive. Uh, I've never ridden a woods frame and I don't think I'd like it either, to be honest. It, it just doesn't look like it fit my ride style. Yeah. You know, I think it's more of a, a riding style thing. And if you were more of a consistent guy, two wheel, keep your wheels in line. I don't think the woods frame is that, is that type of frame for, for those riding styles. So. Yeah. I'll give you like the comparison is I bought a Harry Lilly chassis. You guys, I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he was a Yamaha 500 guy, cylinder head, build chassis. He built me, he built a chassis. And uh, we went to test at Ocala against, so I'd always buy something and try to see if it was better. I can make it better in my night chassis. And then if it wasn't better, I'd sell it and get rid of it. But so Harry's chassis, when you went down into a corner on just a regular track, as soon as you let off the gas, the back end would come out like it had 72 clamps or something on it. And as soon as you cracked the gas back on, it'd come back in a line. It's like, it'd make its own great big motion. You wow. Know? Where your night, you'd run down in the corner and both wheels would just slide even and then, it'd, and then it'd hook up track and then you could leave, you know? And that's the, the difference, you know, the difference yeah, if you torque brake the if you torque brake Harry's chassis, you can make it do the same thing. But now you're having to work at making it do what your other one does by itself. So those are the kind of things I always look for when I was getting something set up. But my night chassis, I would I would run 62s almost all the time. But I I would change the head angle. Like the head angle was big, depending on the grip. So if you was going to Houston, I'd move put the head angle in of the green. And if I was going to run on the ice with really, really good 100% traction tires, I'd take that head angle back out. And it was all about how much grip you had uh, matching up to your head angle. I've always, I kind of, it's taken me a long time to sort of understand the uh, the front end cups and eccentrics and things like that. But 
I've always noticed that on cushions, I like it. I like it pushed out. And then on, you know, on tracks where I, I, I need to turn quicker, I always bring the front end back in. Um, but I don't really venture too far. You know, I'm, I'm, I stay within two degrees pretty much everywhere I go now at this point. Um, I think once you get that, that yeah. setup you like, it's sort of more of like a comfort thing than actually what works best. You know, I've always felt like I ride better being more comfortable than maybe what the bike's doing that's actually better. But um, I really, really enjoyed hearing well, you explain you're that. More, if you're more comfortable, I, and I can tell you, Brent and I went to Springfield Mile, and, and we'd really been starting to learn about, you know, clamp offset and trail and all that stuff. And and I'm like, let's just do a back-to-back. Let's do 55s one practice, 70, or uh, 62s, 55s. You know, 55 is what you run on the mile at the end of my career and uh total offset and 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 i come in and, and we're thrashing i'm i mean i'm working my mechanic into the dirt and he looks at me and he says you're the same speed on both setups and i said yeah but this setup over here i'm going to kill myself on and this setup over here i can save it when i get in trouble yeah and that was <laughs> you know and people don't know that unless you explain it to them you know what I mean? If they're looking at stopwatch all the time. So, yeah, there's a ton, you know, and I had my own frame table at home so we could cut the steering heads off, but that's a whole nother story when you cut your steering head off and move it forward or backwards because you change your nose weight, not counting your trail, you know what I mean? So, do you move it forward, give it more trail, have the same wheelbase? Do you move it back? You know, that's a whole nother question, but it's big. That's that's where guys like Kenny Roberts, he would do that with a road race. He'd cut the steering head off and move it. Oh, wow. Yeah, they don't do that no more. <laughs> yeah, a lot of a lot of good info. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Um, yeah, hopefully we'll see you at a race soon. When's the last national you've been to? Have you have you been to one in person in a while? No, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. Once you get into NASCAR, you don't do anything. <laughs> Heck, I don't even know if I watched bike racing for a while when I was working on them things. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm probably uh, I'm about a year away from being able to go wherever I want. So. Cool. Well, let's stay in touch. Would would love to see you at a race. And uh, man, I really enjoyed chatting with you. So much info. I learned a lot. And yeah, a really really great career uh to say the least uh w- one last piece of info i guess i kind of wanted to ask you is w- when you when you won the championship in 1980 you uh you you lost it in 1981 and then you came back again and won it in 1983 what advice do you have for people that kind of they win something and then they lose it and then what kind of determination it takes to get it back like what what was that mindset for you Oh, geez, it's just, um, for me, it was just persistent and making a plan and learning how to actually making your own plan and sticking to it no matter what. Make your own plan, choose your own tires, don't listen to nobody else, and, and just keep working at it. Work on your stuff and, uh, and go after it. Awesome really yeah i can respect yeah i'm gonna say i can respect that i dig that good info 
Well, again, Randy, yep. we appreciate you coming on and hopefully we can get you on here again soon. All right, bud. I appreciate you guys. All right. Yep. That was awesome, man. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Randy. Talk to you soon. All right. All see right. ya. Good luck. Yeah, thank you. Yep, bye. Randy Goss, Rob. That man. <laughs> I feel bad keeping these guys on, like I always say. I mean, I feel like they would keep talking, but I'm just like, man, I don't know if they would feel like talking to uh I don't know if we should keep Randy Goss on the line talking to Rob and Corey for three hours. So <laughs> you know it's funny though because like every single time especially you know the old timers i hate to keep using that term but that's just how i refer to them it's not a disrespectful thing but man you learn so freaking much like it's crazy how much you learn even how they did it back in the day i'm sitting here thinking like huh i could i i could use that <laughs> yeah well just a different personalities too among like just like jay springsteen to randy goss i mean uh, just two different, completely different insights and interview for like, just the whole deal was amazing. We got a big, big show coming up next week. I'll just leave it at that, but we got a good one for you guys. So make sure you subscribe, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify. Yeah. I want to make sure we shout out our sponsors before we, before we wrap this up, they make it happen. And, uh, we really appreciate them. Bell power sports, check out bellhelmets.com. The Moto America series, Road Atlanta, April 30th to May 2nd. Check that out. Get tickets. If you can't be there in person, subscribe. Moto America Live Plus package. Watch it live. Great, great footage. At DID Chain on social media. Check them out. Major, major teams use the 520MX chain and win championships. Uh, DID Chain. Hit them up on social media. Jerry Stinchfield, as always, we appreciate your support. The whole Roof Systems of Dallas, Texas crew nearly 40 years of experience, commercial industrial roofing. If you have any questions on that, hit up Jerry. He'll get you dialed in. Dunlop Motorcycle Tires, the official tire of the American Flat Track Series. Hit them up, DunlopMotorcycleTires.com. Don't forget that giveaway. We're giving away a F5 front tire. Leave us a review on iTunes. Post it on your Instagram story and tag and follow Dunlop and Tank Slapping Podcast. Aim Sports Data, the Solo 2 and Solo 2 DL, the world leader in data acquisition game changer. I hate even telling you guys about it because I use it all the time and it's a game changer. GPS lap timer, check out AIM Sports Data on social media and the Moo Tool Slacker, the suspension checker, checks your sag, motorcycle, mountain bike suspension. Hit me up. I'll get you more information on that, on that tool and why it's kind of cheating when it comes to checking your suspension. It's, it's such a great tool. Uh, yeah, appreciate those sponsors that, that make this happen. That's all I got, Rob. Appreciate you, man. Uh, let's let's get it tuned in for next the next show, man. It's a good one.